Hello and welcome to another edition of London Live. It's Thursday, March 14th, 2019. Uh, Mike Stubbs is off again today. He will be back in the host chair uh, next week. You'll hear from Mike on the show today, however. This is a big week for the London Knights. It's the uh, final week of the regular season. They're in a dogfight for first place in the Western Conference. Knights lost to Guelph last night. They play in uh, Sault Ste. Marie tomorrow night. And Saginaw Saturday night, as always, you can hear every game on 980 CFPL. On today's show, we'll talk uh, bus rapid transit for the first hour of the program. London City Hall released their list of 19 transit projects that could be submitted to the federal and provincial governments for funding. As you will recall, the deadline set by Mayor Ed Holder is at the end of the month. The transit projects were released yesterday. They will be discussed by the Civic Works Committee this afternoon at 4. Next Wednesday, a public participation meeting will be held. The week after that, City Council will be making their decision. As we have reported, the city is splitting up BRT from one giant plan to five components of a plan. Phil Squire is a councillor for Ward 6. He's uh, right smack dab in the middle of this with his ward with the northern leg. That's by far the most controversial portion of the plan. He's also the chair of the Civic Works Committee, so we'll talk to him in a few moments. We'll also talk to Dan McDonald from Downshift for their reaction to this. We'll talk to Marcus Plowright from Build the City for their reaction. They are on opposite sides of the coin on the issue. In the second hour of the program, we'll talk about the impact technology, screen time, and smartphones is having on our lives. This is a follow-up to something we did on the show yesterday. We'll also talk about the Junos, we'll talk to Mike Stubbs, and we'll talk to Ian Arthur from the NDP about his private member's bill that would ban all single-use throwaway plastics in Ontario by 2025. This would also be a follow-up to something we did on the show yesterday. That was talking more about the plastic problem we have in Canada as a whole. Up first, though, let's talk bus rapid transit. This is a big month. For transit in London, with all five legs of the transit plan now split up, will it make it through? Is it better or worse if that doesn't happen? What about other items on the list? Phil Squires, the chair of the Civic Works Committee, it meets today to talk about the list of transit projects. As I said, he's the councillor for Ward 6. This is where the northern leg is located. Phil joins us now. Thanks for your time today. Oh, it's really good to be with you. Uh, it's, uh, I'm a little concerned about the London Knights, but we're not going to talk about that today. We'll talk about transit. How's that? Yeah, well, I mean, hey, uh, yeah, I'm not even going to get started on the London Knights, but uh, I, I, was, I was talking to Mike Stubbs uh, off-air earlier today. We're going to talk to him on the program later today. He's right. not as worried yeah. about the Knights just based on shooting percentages and stuff, so I, I think we should be, we can, we can rest easy about the London Knights. The question is, can All we right. rest easy about rapid transit in this city, do you think? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, the way I look at it right now, Devin, is that the city of London was, was taken to a, a fancy restaurant and said, you know, spend as much as you want on, on a super plan, satisfy yourself, and all will be well, and the money will be coming. And now uh, it looks like we're going to a fast food restaurant, and we're going to be asked to buy small items off the value menu and hope that it works. And I know that sounds like a weird comparison, but it's the best one I can come up with today as to, as to what's happened. And for me, and I think some other counselors, it's, it's disappointing, it's confusing. We don't exactly know what we're going to be presented with in terms of costs, and we're supposed to do all of this in two weeks, and the public's supposed to weigh in during that time, time, same time period. So I think it's, it's put us in a really tough position. 
So uh, are you, you, I've, I've seen some comments from you uh, when there's been yeah. talk about, uh, you know, splitting this up into the five components, yeah. which was part of yeah. what was released yesterday. Would you have preferred when we talk about a transit plan for London, it's all one bigger project, not in terms of um, cost necessarily, but uh, yeah. the size of it, of what it is? Or you're, I'm guessing yeah. you, you would prefer yeah. that as opposed think- to the components? Well, the, the, the one question I'm going to be asking, and it's going to be, I'm going to be asking a lot of call, my, a lot of my colleagues if they want to break this up is, so the previous four years when you're all telling me that I couldn't make any changes in the route going through North London, that everything had to be as it was, what, what changed? Like, what happened from their point of view? I know it's changed in terms of the money. We had a change in government, and the government now says, hey, we're not going to send you a big check. But my argument to that would be the signs were, were there all along from the whole process that the federal government and local uh, federal representation, and certainly with the change in government, that the government, that other levels of government, government were not going to just send us a big check for BRT. So what we've effectively done is spent all this time spending all this money on consultants and whatever without, without ourselves as a council creating alternatives. In other words, there was a total buy-in by the previous council on what they were being sold, and now we find ourselves in this position that we can't afford the fancy car or, or fancy meal that we thought we could have. So people are now twisting themselves uh, up to try to explain why it's great to do it this way and we can break it up, but somebody's going to have to explain to me how we know that what we're going to be presented with and how you know putting these little pieces together is going to work. And... I think that's pretty tough to do. And there's a lot of frustrated counselors right now, I think, in the offices saying, how did we get ourselves in this position? And, and I think that's a valid question. How did we get ourselves in this position? I think, I think what happened was we went for the moon. We said, look, here's this, this huge project. We, we just carried on and carried on. And all along, and you'll know this, staff kept coming to counselors saying, oh, yeah, the checks are in the mail. They're, they're going to fund this. The feds are going to send us a big check. The province is going to send us a big check, and we're just not seeing that. There's been no approval from the federal government on this plan, never has been. And there's a change of government, and anybody who thinks Doug Ford and his government is just going to send us a huge check, just read the letter that Jeff Urick sent us, uh, I think it was yesterday, which basically says, don't send us a big project. Don't send us a, a huge project, because we're not going to write the check. So um, we're in a tough spot right now, but... We're going to have to deal with it, and uh, there's going to have to be a lot of questions asked about what are the most effective things we can we can do for transit. But um, I wish we had started earlier, and, and I think we had an opportunity as a council in the last term to look at some other alternatives that would have been more effective, a little cheaper, and we just we just chose not to do that. So that's the way it goes. Did the previous council blow it? Um, I think they were stubborn. That's the you know I spent two or three years saying to them, as the public did, saying, look, the route that goes through my ward just doesn't work, and it's, and it's very expensive. It, it, it involved a huge tunnel that we could never build, but my colleagues just kept voting, no, 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 Phil. We're going to do what we said we were going to do. We're going to, even without a tunnel, this is the way we're going to go. We're going to take the most expensive, you know, sort of plan we can come up with, and we're going to hope we get the money. And look where we are now. So... I think it's really tough, and, and what I'm looking for, I don't want the previous members of council to go around blaming anybody for where we are today. I think we have to take responsibility for where we put the city and where we're going to be, and uh, let's go from there. We, we're all 
in some way responsible for where we are, and we, we've got to move ahead. We are joined on the line by Ward 6 Councillor Phil Squire. So one of the questions people have been asking me is, they're asking, yeah. they're saying, like, does this mean bus rapid transit is dead? And my answer is being, well, I, I can't say for sure. I don't know if the no. plan passes. Like, if, 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 if it wasn't parsed up into five components, I don't know if it passes. And But I don't know. Clearly, hearing from you and some other counselors, there's some dissatisfaction with also cutting it up. So I, I don't know what happens with yeah. bus rapid transit. Well, the problem is that we were told, and I was certainly told at the beginning, that you can't cut it up. That, that for this system to work, that we had to have every single piece of it. Because keep in mind that all of the travel times, all of the operating costs, everything to do with this, this system is based on the whole system. So I don't think within two weeks they can come back and present us with a fully costed plan and say that it's going to work. So if you're asking me, is the plan in total, all of it together, Ed, I say yes, it is dead. The next question is, is there a part of it that's going to be going ahead? In other words, can you go ahead with one route and make it work? I don't know the answer to that yet because I'm going to be asking exactly those questions. On top of that, there are a lot of little pieces in that in that plan that Londoners have been begging for, you know, Synchronized transit lights, I don't think there's a person in the city of London who isn't asking for that. So I think there's some really easy stuff in there. But the parts of BRT are going to be really, really interesting. What I fear is that it's going to turn into a political game. In other words, people who like BRT are going to be looking for the piece in their ward to benefit their ward. So are they going to be ward-first counselors looking for what's best for them and their ward? Or are they going to be London councillors looking for what's better for the whole city? That's going to be really fascinating because this may have more to do with politics than it has to do with good planning. Uh, something you said earlier is interesting to me in terms of what you were saying to the previous council and were told no. If, if we're now cutting this up into five different pieces, and I would say the northern leg of all the five pieces is probably... Uh, I don't know if it's controversial, but it's it's received the most oh, pushback from from, yeah, from, from it, people. Yeah, it's a section that that I represent, and it's the section with with two things. First of all, there was huge divisiveness over it, and any person who does a big transit project will will say to you, "You can't do a project with if the public isn't backing it." The other the other part of it is, quite frankly, is there's a there's an alternative to that using Western Road and Warncliffe that is much cheaper and, in my view, much more effective. And it's supported by Western University. But, of course, my colleagues on the previous council just would not even support that. I presented that to council. I got it presented, and they all voted resoundingly against it. So, um, you know, I, I think the northern route is really tough. Um, I think it'll be one that will be really tough to see. Um, but some of the other ones, I think, will come into play, and they may come into play for political reasons. You may see people saying, I've got to get something out of this because I based my whole political career on BRT." So I've got to try to get something, and that's what I'm going to be watching for. Are people doing things for political reasons rather than for the good of London? And that's, that's going to be very interesting for people who are interested in politics. Theoretically, could you, uh, when this decision is ultimately going to be made, put forward the Warncliffe Western Road option again? Because when that was discussed previously, they were all, it was, you know, here's, here's the idea of it. Nothing really has changed since then. No. Yeah, all the engineers, the, the plan is there for it, and I can tell you right now, I'm going to be pushing that, because if we don't do the one on Richmond, which I don't think we're going to do, Western University needs great transit. And for me, we've done the work on Western Road. 
We have no rail impediment on Western Road. We can do something there. So I'm going to be talking to staff and asking them in public meetings, why can't we revisit that? Not today, not tomorrow, but I'm going to want some assurance that Ford 6 is going to get good transit. Just it, it, it makes sense to me because of the number of people being Western students who use transit. We are joined on the line by Phil Squire, the chair of the Civic Works Committee and the councillor for Ward 6. Are some of these routes dependent on another? Because we've always said, you know, that there's the 7 and there's the there's the L. So, like, yeah. does does if we were to support, you know, the South, does that mean something else is also have to be? Or could we theoretically just do North, one of North, South, East or West? I think it's the downtown we'll, we'll throw in there as well. But can you can we do yeah. one without another or like how interconnected well, are some problem. of these? Here's the problem that. I'm on the LTC, and the LTC has done a whole route replanning based on all of the BRT routes. So what they've done is redesigned all of their routes, a good number of them, I shouldn't say all, but a good number, to coincide with the BRT plan. So you've got five years of London Transit planning, city planning, city building planning, invested into that total BRT plan. And so that's what's going to make it difficult. I'm going to have to, before I would support doing one route, First of all, I want to hear what the public says. But secondly, I want to know that it's, it's integrated, that it works. Because what happens if they don't really work anymore? What if they don't draw the ridership so that our, our tax costs go way up to operate these things? I, I think we're, we're really working in quicksand, you know, and every decision we make now is going to have impact. So what you might see is people going for the standalone project that we know what they're going to do. So, for instance, fixing up the intersection at Oxford and Warncliffe, which is on the list, for me, that's a no-brainer because I don't think there's anyone in the city of London who hasn't been caught in a line of traffic at that intersection. So I don't think those things are tough. Synchronized lights, I don't think that's tough. I think those are things that every Londoner is going to agree on. The BRT routes, I think not so much. I think there's opposition probably in every ward and support in every ward for certain routes. So... This is going to be, this is like having a giant puzzle that was put together for you. And now the puzzle's been taken apart and new pieces have been added to the puzzle. And then in two weeks, we're supposed to put it all together and make it perfect. And that's going to be tough. Uh, one last question I, I have for you is yeah. uh, last week, or sorry, last month, um, the Rapid Transit Implementation Working Group had some autonomous vehicle experts come and yeah. speak. And I I was struck by some of the comments they made. Uh, One of the people, Barry Kirk, was talking about how the the London's plan right now made sense for five years ago, but doesn't really account for autonomous vehicles. I'm not saying that they're a solution to our transit problem, but I think they are going to be active when this is all completed and they got to be factored in. I understand this whole discussion is about funding projects and what's ready now. We haven't done anything on autonomous vehicles, so that can't be part of this discussion in terms of federal or provincial funding. But the autonomous vehicle aspect, I think, hangs over all of this still. And how is the city accounting for whatever impact autonomous vehicles are going to have with whatever transit project we end up going with? Well, that's a great question. I have not yet seen anybody from the city staff or otherwise say, let's factor autonomous vehicles into this plan. They've been asked to, but usually the answer is, and I heard it from the consultants, IBI group, they basically said, oh, yeah, we still need, no matter what happens with autonomous vehicles, we still need this plan. That's also like saying, you know, uh, ride sharing and Uber and taxis have had no effect on transit systems. We know they've had a huge impact on transit systems. So, 
Um, that's something that I don't think has been considered, nor do I think it will be considered. And you're right. Most people who, who I talk to will say transit is changing at a rapid pace. It's changing very quickly. So anything we do today may be impacted by something new in five years. And I think that's something that the gentleman who was at the, at the, uh, at the meeting said. He quite frankly said, you should be putting a pause on this until we find out what the future is going to hold. And I think that's something that's, that's really wise. Sometimes grandiose plans are not the best thing to do. Sometimes incremental change, making improvements that people want right away, that's the best way to go. So this is going to be a fascinating discussion in the next two weeks, and, and I think a lot of counselors are going to be looking for answers. I think they're going to be looking for explanations from staff as to why now we can break up the BRT, why that works when we were told before it was me. I was told before we couldn't break it up, but it had to all be together. So I think from, from a point of a politician, um, there's going to be a lot of people trying to explain sort of new positions that they've developed in the matter of the last few months. And I think what they'll be saying is this was forced on us by other levels of government. I would argue that somehow we put ourselves to a great extent in this position by the way we dealt with this issue in the last four years. Phil, I appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Great talking to you. Go nice. That's Ward 6 Councillor Phil Squire. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program, everyone. Uh, we went long with uh, Phil Squire there. I uh, wasn't intending originally to go that long with him, but uh, I think we had a good conversation, and it leads to interesting questions moving forward uh, in, tr- in terms of does the Northern Leg have support if it's along Warncliffe or not? Uh, if I remember and go back to some of the different options, the Warncliffe, uh, one of the reasons um, someone city council, the previous council, did not like the Warncliffe option was there were actually more potential uh, disruptions to uh, property on that route compared to uh, going up Richmond. So it'll be interesting to see um, if that is resurrected as part of all this or not. Uh, but I'm getting the sense that there's a lot of people who are just un- upset with cutting up the the plan in general, cutting it up into different pieces and voting it on that way as opposed to one giant one. But previously, people weren't, up, weren't all that pleased with it all together as one package either. And uh, one of the problems that may be rising to the surface is everyone had a different idea in their mind of what not going ahead with BRT was. Is that a completely different project? Is that just not doing all the different components of what has been put forward? What is it? And then uh, I, I know I'm kind of a, a one-track mind with this sort of stuff, but the automated vehicles aspect to me is is really interesting and really important. Automated vehicles are not a alternative to public transit, but I do think automated vehicles... And again, we're talking, we're not talking about 2019 or 2020 for automated vehicles. We're talking 2030, 2040, when this is going to be up and going. Ideally, this bus or airport transit is done by 2030 in terms of construction, but that, that about time. So if, you know, say automated vehicles are a semi-regular to quasi-regular part of transportation by 2035, 
at that point, we conceivably could have a transit system that is out of date. The, the, the automated vehicle component to me is they could add congestion, which, you know, transit uh, proponents have said. I wouldn't argue that, but I just see people as liking the idea of automated vehicles so much it may not matter. I certainly think London should be hiring an automated vehicle expert. And the conversation uh, we had uh, about a month ago with Barry Kirk, who is uh, an automated vehicle expert, he was uh, telling uh, council members last month that the plan they had before them was already out of date, and he was really urging them to look at automated vehicles as part of the overall transportation system here in London. So automated vehicles is something I am personally quite interested in. And uh, we will see how much the city is interested in that uh, as well, because uh, they're coming. I know some people are skeptical that they're coming, uh, but they are coming. Uh, We need to pause. We come back. We'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the show. This is Devin Peacock in with you. We're talking BRT for the first hour of the program. I want to continue that now by talking to Marcus Plowright from Build This City. They're a community group. They support London's full rapid transit plan. Marcus Plowright is with Build This City. He joins us now. Thanks for your time today. It's my pleasure. We are getting down to the uh, nitty-gritty here in London with regards to uh, transit and bus rapid transit. Uh, the list of uh, transit projects that will be discussed by council and will be the subject of a public participation meeting next week was released uh, yesterday. Uh, bus rapid transit is no longer effectively one large plan. It's uh, five different components. Uh, does that to you uh, make it, for you, is it more likely that what we've been talking about for the past couple of years goes forward, or could it be uh, some bits and pieces rather than this whole large component, do you think? The structure and how the vote happens um, doesn't change the enormity of the situation for the citizens of London. Each one of these councillors has um, the fate of 400,000 citizens on their vote and the other 100,000 citizens that haven't arrived yet that will over the next 20 years and need some means of a functioning city that has a a transit system that works for them and keeps traffic at bay. So these councillors have an enormous responsibility to do the right thing for the next 20 years, and uh, and I hope they take that very seriously as they approach each one of these votes in each one of these circumstances. Uh, Build the City has been an advocate for the uh, the BRT plan as a whole. I, I know you guys are urging uh, councillors to really uh, think long-term with this vote. Yes, BRT, BRT is, is an element of building the city, and we as an organization believe the important thing is to put the structure in place to ensure employment, to ensure uh, an infrastructure that supports employers, and employees, and ultimately uh, what we need is prudent financial management on behalf of our councillors, and we believe uh, a $500 million investment in the city uh, of infrastructure that helps us 20 years down the road, that only costs us 4.6% of that $500 million. There could never be a better and more prudent thing to do other than to move forward and make sure that we secure all of the senior-level government funding 
and use the development charges wisely. Are you concerned that this uh, council is not thinking long-term with regards to bus rapid transit right now? I can't predict uh, personally what each vote will do, but I have concerns that some councillors sound sound like they're more concerned about short-term uh, implications of, of appearing appropriate than doing the right thing long-term and, and building a legacy based on what this council decides. If this council ultimately decides to do, uh, you know, three-fifths, four-fifths, two-fifths of these different components with trying to, and if I'm, I'm I'm putting the cart before the horse, but I've heard some of the arguments already made by councillors say, well, if we do part of it, we can build the case for the rest of it. Does that make sense to you, or is that a concern that maybe the rest never happens? It's a very big concern that the rest never happens. And also, the things that they replace uh, elements of the BRT with that don't have the same funding model as the BRT does uh, will inevitably cost more money for London taxpayers. So the councillors that decide to not move forward with elements of the BRT need to know that they'll be held responsible for the spending that results uh, from choices that aren't as prudent financially. Would you have preferred that this was still just one, you know, the, the five components were just one big plan rather than the components? Um, I certainly don't want to second guess the process. I don't think it matters whether they vote individually or they vote as a block on, on these topics. I think what's important is just simply that the councillors do what's right for the city. And whether they have one vote or five votes, ultimately splitting it up makes it more successful. I'm all for splitting it up. Uh, ultimately, I think we've seen, and our, our voice basically said through the election, that in order to secure the funds, the only option is to approve BRT because it's the only one that has an environmental assessment and a business case behind it. We're seeing that with the administration coming forward saying, for the most part, only elements of the BRT are fully available for full funding. So I just don't want to lose that funding. I don't want to lose those jobs. I don't want to lose that infrastructure that we're going to desperately need over the next 10 years. One of the questions I've had uh, people ask me that I don't know the answer to is uh, well, people have been asking, first off, when they heard that it, the, the plan was being cut into five different components, uh, they were asking, does this mean uh, BRT is dead? And I said, I don't know. But one question I, I don't know is if, if, if the, because the north leg was so contentious and continues to be so contentious, if the, if the plan was all as one, whether it gets approved uh, or not, and maybe it's more successful with the different components. I, I don't know. I could see a, a scenario where uh, even though the North Leg is contentious, it all gets approved, and I could see a scenario where the exact opposite happens. So to me, it's a, it's, it's a hard question. I don't know how to answer that question people ask me. Let's talk about the North Leg for, for, for a moment. Sure. The North Leg includes University Hospital, Western, the University of Western Ontario, and 30,000 students, all those people that use that hospital facility, 10,000 employees of that facility. It is the largest economic engine in our city. Uh, the North Route, which cost the city about $6 million, rebuilds a road that we're going to have to rebuild anyway at a drastically more expensive cost than $6 million. So if we do 
move forward without the North route approved. It's going to cost the City of London taxpayers an enormous amount and the same disruption over the next 10 years because we're going to have to fix and widen and improve the infrastructure under Richmond. We're still going to have to rebuild that university bridge, whether it's done at the university's expense or our expense. The university is us. We are those people that run that administration. They are Londoners. All those uh, students are citizens of London while they're here, and we need to serve them and make sure that they can get downtown, they can get to the train station, they can get to the bus station, they can get to the airport using public transit. So I think the, the North Leg is incredibly important, and uh, for a $6 million investment, those dedicated lanes can be used for any purpose in the future. Council can at any time change the use of those lanes. We just need to move forward with this plan as it is and then amend it as time goes on. The North Lake doesn't get built for probably three or four years, so we have lots of time to amend the plan. The conversation with the Northern Lake hasn't really talked about as much that, though. There's been a lot of there's been opposition from local residents, so that's the only reason why I say I don't know, just because it's been so contentious. People are are are, are as I've seen more conversation about that than the other components all combined. I I would agree, although I think um, Councillor Squire has perhaps fueled that. Uh, that contentiousness. I don't know if it's fair to say that the entirety of North London is against that, when if they knew that they were going to have their road disrupted anyway, they knew that uh, they're going to be gridlocked with buses in running in traffic anyway for the next 10 years, uh, if they knew that their taxes were going to go up three times or four times the cost or even 20 times the cost if we don't do this as part of a, an infrastructure investment that's supported by provincial and federal government. I think if they knew all those facts, you might find that the bulk of the North citizens would support this initiative. Uh, we will be following this with interest. Marcus, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure talking to you. That's Marcus Plowright from Build This City. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program. This is Devin Peacock in on London Live. Uh, we will continue with our talk on BRT. We've talked to Phil Squire. We've talked to Marcus Plowright from uh, Build This City. And I want to talk to uh, Dan McDonald from a Downshift. They have uh, raised concerns. They have been critics of the BRT plan to date. Uh, to get his thoughts on the latest developments, we're now joined by Dan McDonald. Thanks for your time today. No, it's great to talk to you again. Uh, I'm interested on what you think of uh, the way uh, things are progressing on the uh, BRT file. We had these uh, transit projects that were uh, released uh, by the city yesterday, 19 in all. Uh, the major items, though, that are generating uh, the most uh, response for obvious reasons are the uh, the five components of what used to be one large BRT plan, now parsed down to five components. Um, do you like the decision to put it into five components, or would you have preferred it was one large discussion, uh, large decision made by city council? Well, I, I, the problem with the BRT plan originally was that it, it really wasn't sustainable by a business plan for a great deal of it. And this just reinforces that by doing it in chunks, I don't know how you're ever going to measure the viability or why this works or why it doesn't work. And uh, just spending money because you have it on maybe one or two legs of this 
um, sounds more like a Trojan horse to bring in the rest of it down the road. So if I'm hearing you right, maybe if uh, the argument is uh, if, if we're cutting it up into pieces, that's maybe an omission we need to reevaluate the whole thing anyway, just uh, rather than go after the funding, decide whether we actually want to do this at all. Well, and that's the point. I mean, our position originally and throughout the whole idea was London needs improvements in transportation. It just wasn't the BRT plan. So uh, cutting it up into portions and all these other things, I, I, I just don't know what that accomplishes. And if if someone's there to say, well, well it just means we get the money, uh, get the money for what? Um, this still doesn't service the east end properly. It doesn't service the south end properly. Um, some of the other projects that are on there are uh, uh, really are the kinds of things London needs. But uh, when it gets into that whole BRT conundrum, um, it, it really demonstrates again that uh, 80% of Londoners voted against the BRT in the election, and 65% of Londoners weren't going to be serviced by an entire built-out BRT. So you look at those two staggering numbers, and what is it now with only doing one or maybe two legs of this? What is it, 85% of Londoners aren't going to be serviced by this? Uh, it, it just seems like, uh, it just seems very political to me. Whether it's, uh, you know, five components or one component, uh, the fact that it's still being voted on, does that, is, is that going against kind of what the, the will of the people, what Londoners were voting for then? Well, Londoners, Londoners made it very clear, and uh, I think our current mayor, uh, I keep seeing cuts of tapes uh, uh, from when he was running for mayor telling everybody he was against BRT, oh, never BRT, and now all of a sudden Ed's changed in the wind. And I heard him earlier on CFPL this morning, and the answers he gave on that show, I, I, I couldn't understand what he was talking about. So it sounded like a lot of Ottawa doublespeak to me. Um, if you're against this, you're against it. And uh, just to say, well, we're going to jimmy rig in a couple of couple of routes and throw them in there just to get some money. Uh, if 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 that isn't sort of half-ass thinking, I don't know what is. It's interesting because I, you know I've talked to uh, uh, proponents and opponents of uh, London's rapid transit plan here. And no one seems to like the idea of cutting it up into these five components. And to me, then, that makes brings the question of, well, does that mean, like, like do we even like this plan at all? If we're, I mean, if, if no one kind of likes this, uh, I, I know generally you know, that the old saying is uh, everyone's not always uh, easy with a compromise, but this seems a little bit different than uh, that type of reaction to a compromise. It seems as though there might be some structural uh, issues we have with the the plan as it has been presented. Well, and that was the the, the point, Devin, right off the bat. Um, I mean, uh, our group started on one area, and then it became a citywide movement where people joined us to say, I'm not getting service. I'm not getting service. I'm not going to benefit from this. And uh, people stepped forward by the thousands, and when they went to the polls last fall, they made it pretty clear um, to just jimmy rig something like this, to me, I, it just, it, uh, it, it's, it's the old joke about putting uh, lipstick on a pig. It's, it's still a pig. 
and uh, Jesse Helmer, who was Mr. BRT, uh, all of a sudden is, oh, well, uh, if we can't get that for, for politics, we'll just jam in a couple of these pieces. How's that work for you, London? Well, uh, please, uh, you know, let's do some more strategic planning. Didn't everybody say about a year ago, let's get back to basics, let's really look at this plan, let's look at the viability of it, and uh, all the city did was keep dancing around. And uh, this this report to me, uh, this is just uh, a, a really, really bad slice of the pie. What advice would you give to city council on uh, on how they should uh, move forward on this file? I I think they should take the BRT, put it back into one program instead of mincing around with these five so-called plans, and then they should look at the other programs. If you if there are things that need, they, let's face it, we all know there are things that need to be done in London around transportation around roads, bridges, overpasses, all those things. Let's focus on something that's really of benefit. And let's get the LTC involved this time. The LTC was a, 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 an onlooker in that last progress because the city tried to take over their job. And the LTC really wasn't involved in this. If people on the inside knew that, those people were kept at arm's length by this BRT crowd. And by the way, of the original BRT management team that foisted this idea on London, there's nobody left. There's nobody left. They've either all resigned, gone, or gone to other jobs. So here we are down to one individual who writes this report, and uh, this so-called team of experts, uh, they're gone. They're long gone. So are we really going to foist that on Londoners? I, 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 I can't believe where we are. Dan, I uh, certainly appreciate your time today. I'll be interested to see how this uh, moves forward. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's Dan McDonald from Downshift. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. That's it for the first hour of London Live. It was an eventful hour of London Live. Uh, different components uh, to the BRT discussion. I hope uh, uh, you uh, got something out of that. Should be an interesting couple of weeks here in London as we move towards what I assume is going to be a decision on bus rapid transit. Uh, but uh, we shall see. This seems to be, at this point, maybe a compromise that no one's really in love with, but all good compromises uh, aren't really something that everyone is in favor of. In the second hour of the program, we will be talking to Mike Stubbs about the uh, weekend to come for the London Knights. We'll be talking about uh, the Junos. We will be talking about the plastics in Ontario and what the NDP would like to see happen with plastics. We'll also be talking about cell phones, screen time, and technology and the impact it's having on our lives. That's a uh, follow-up from a discussion we had in the program on yesterday's show. That's all coming up in the second hour of the program. This is London Live and Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. This is Devin Peacock in with you on London Live. Uh, Mike Stubbs will be back with you on Monday. I want to go back to something we were talking about the other day, which is cell phone use. 
Uh, you know the story. Provincial government wants to ban cell phones in the classroom. Education Minister Lisa Thompson has said it's an effort to help students focus on learning. The Thames Valley District School Board has said they're fine with the ban so long as it doesn't interfere with teaching in the classroom. They already have policies similar to this already. And what the province wants to do is similar to this. So as long as that doesn't change it, they're fine with the ban. Uh, the directive hasn't gone out yet, still isn't official. The government has talked about it, uh, but they haven't put it through uh, the uh, normal workings of government. When it is passed, it's likely there will be some exceptions. So if teachers do want to use a uh, cell phone in class as part of a lesson, that will be allowed. If it's needed for medical reasons, that's allowed. Uh, if it's needed for students with special needs, that would be allowed. So it's not a full ban, but, you know, a, a ban with, I think, reasonable exp- exceptions. Uh, that's the general story. I want to broaden this beyond just what happens in the classroom and talk about cell phone use, smartphone use in general. We are joined by Carl Honoré. He's an expert on this. He's a speaker and he is a best-selling author. His new book, actually, uh, Boulder, uh, Making the Most of Our Longer Lives, just came out in Canada last week. He joins us on the line now. Thanks for your time today. Good to be with you. I'm really interested in uh, smartphones and how we use them. I personally, at night, have tried to put mine away about an hour before I want to go to sleep just because if it's beside you all the time, you're checking it. And what we've seen about smartphones is true. We are either addicted to them or we just can't stop checking about checking them, and it does affect our sleep patterns. So I, I wonder, do you think we're becoming a bit more aware of the impact our smartphones are having on our lives? I think definitely. It seems to me that whenever a new technology comes along, we we tend to go overboard with it at the start, and we're not quite sure how to use it wisely. And and I think now we're just getting to that tipping point where we're realizing that there are a lot of wonderful things about smartphones, but they also have some drawbacks if you if you misuse them. And so we're starting, I think, just now to see that conversation beginning where people are looking to create new social rules, new protocols, new new ways of handling phones that we, so that we get the most out of them, so that we're not slaves to the gadgets, but that the gadgets become really, really useful tools for us instead. If we are addicted to them in, in some way, is that something you think can be broken or has become just so much more sophisticated? Does that become just so difficult? It is difficult. There's no way around it. Uh, addiction is a big word to use, but I think it's an accurate one in this case. There's something... There's a kind of existential addiction we get to to um, smartphones. We just are, you know, the whole FOMO thing. We're afraid of missing out and all the excitement that comes with that. But they've also done research that shows that we even have a kind of chemical biological addiction. They took away smartphones from some university students in Germany a little while ago and then wired them up to see what kind of reaction they had to it. And they had exactly the same reaction as heroin addicts have when you take away their fix. So we're, we are addicted at almost like a cellular level at the moment, which means it will be difficult, but it's not impossible. And in fact, wherever you go around the world, and I do a lot of this kind of work, you, you, can, you can wean people off, right, with small steps, switching off, carving out moments when you're not on, creating spaces where you don't have gadgets, and gradually pull yourself away from that addiction. It can, it can be done, but like overcoming any addiction, it's not, uh, it's not the easiest thing in the world. In your travels, do you see people use smartphones differently, or are we all kind of uh, attached to them in, in the same way all around the globe? Well, I, I do a lot of international travel for my work, and I feel like I see the same use pretty much everywhere. People 
unable to have conversations or distracted when they're supposed to be chatting to a colleague or a friend or a, or a child. Uh, over meals, you know, you see the phones all lined up on the table like, um, you know, six shooters in a saloon bar in the Wild West. People, I think, wherever you go, the use of smartphones is not, doesn't, doesn't seem to vary that much. We're all kind of in the same place at the moment. But by the same token, I think we're all having the same backlash against it. We're having the same rethink that's going on as people look for new ways to, to build a better, healthier relationship with their gadgets. And one new social ritual that's emerged that I like very much that shows that the, the tectonic plates are shifting a little bit is this, this practice called stacking. I live in London, England, but you, you see it a lot here. You see it in New York. I'm, I'm, not, sure, I'm not sure if I've seen it in Canada, but um, you certainly find it around the world in other places. And what it is is this, is when younger people, this tends to be something that younger people do, so when teenagers and 20-somethings go out for a coffee or sushi or whatever, they're sitting around the table. Everybody piles their phone up in the middle of the table in a stack, and whoever grabs their phone first during that meeting to look at Instagram or send a tweet pays the bill for everybody around wow. the table, right? And it's just a nifty way of saying, you know, we have this moment here together. We'll never have this moment again. Why spoil it by trying to be in several other moments at the same time? And I think the fact that that ritual stacking is bubbling up from, from below, it's, it's the digital native generation who've come to that conclusion. It's not being imposed by, you know, burned out baby boomers who didn't grow up with screens. It's, it's being, you know, brought into into practice by people who grew up around this stuff. And I think that shows that there are certain limits to what the human body and mind can cope with when it comes to technological and electronic distraction. We're kind of bumping up against those limits now, and as a result of that, we are all, at every generation, looking for new ways to to be in the world with our, our smartphones. I haven't seen that here. I might try and start it here. It sounds like a good idea to, to stack uh, one of the uh, reasons I wanted to talk about this is uh, here in Ontario, uh, the provincial government's looking at banning cell phones in classrooms. The reason for it is not kind of what we're talking about. They're more looking at, you know, the social parts of it all and just making sure kids are just paying attention in classroom. But what I do wonder, though, is if maybe an, an unintended benefit could be there's some, you know, learned uh, habits that could come from, you know, there are times in the day where you just have to put your smartphone away. Yeah, and that's a useful practice, I think, for all of us to cultivate. And, and I think it's very hopeful to, to hear, you know, uh, governments in Canada looking at starting young, because the younger we start to retrain ourselves, the easier it's going to be in later life to have a disciplined approach to, to the gadgets. And, you know, Canada is not alone in having those those conversations, I think, I mean, France has either done it or very recently thinking of banning cell phone use in classes um, throughout the educational system. And wherever you go around the world, you find, especially in pr- the private schools where they have control, more control maybe than the state system, they are clamping down on, on cell phone use. So I've just been in Silicon Valley doing a lot of speaking and working with you know, parents who, who actually work in these tech companies, you know, Google, Microsoft, Apple, and so on. And what you're finding in those families is that what they're doing is holding back the technology from their children. So they're keeping them away from tablets, phones, and all that stuff as late as possible. And in fact, what you find when a, a, a nanny goes for an interview now at one of these Silicon Valley families, the very first question that often comes up from the parents is, what are you going to do to keep my kid off screens, right? And then you see the same thing reflected in schools. So I went to a few schools in that Silicon Valley channel where, you know, you know a lot of wealthy, affluent families, people who 
understand how tech works, people who work in tech, and you find a lot of these schools just banning cell phone use altogether in the classroom and even in the schoolyard, you know, saying to parents, when you come and pick up your little girl, your little boy, you know, leave your phone in the pocket or in the car. Just come here and be fully present. And so these are parts, I think they're kind of, this is a weather vane showing that the, uh, the, 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 winds, are, the winds of change are blowing in, in a hopeful way. We are joined on the line by Carl Honore, best-selling author of Boulder, Making the Most of Our Longer Lives. When you talk to people from Silicon Valley, um, do you detect any, it's not regret, but any sort, like, because they certainly seem to uh, recognize how important it is just to put your phone down. Uh, any sense of, well, maybe uh, we've been almost too successful at making these devices? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, usually off the record, you hear that kind of regrets and a little maybe a whiff of, of guilt. And in fact, what we've seen in public is you've seen some of these former executives from Facebook and, and some of the social media giants coming out almost as apostates and saying, you know what, we made these gadgets way too addictive. I've, we've seen the damages doing in our own homes, and we're now going to you know, make this case publicly. So they've set up you know, institutes and organizations and are now lobbying for the tech companies to rejig their algorithms and change their interfaces and so on so that the gadgets are less addictive to people. And one of the things, the arguments they often made is, you know, we see our own kids, we see what's happening in our own homes, and and we feel bad about it. Um, Of course, that's a minority who are doing that publicly and actually taking steps. But definitely, I mean, I I was just blown away by how many people will tell you quietly that, you know, they feel a little bit uneasy about that disconnect, that, that paradox that, you know, go to work every day trying to make the smartphones as alluring as possible to boost the bottom line of the company, but then coming home and, you know, being a, taking a more kind of, you know, switch off draconian approach in their own home. So that, that, again, that shows, I think, what I was saying earlier, that we are bumping up against the limits of what the technology can do for us and w- what it can do against us. And, um, you know, change, change is coming. And if, it's, if you see it in Silicon Valley, that's often the vanguard. That's the spearhead. That's the, the canary in the coal mine, perhaps. Change, change doesn't also mean, you know, anti-technology. It's, uh, you know, I, I love my smartphone. Uh, I've got my iPad. I use them often. Um, they're extremely useful. They're, they're good at what they do. It's just if we're not at our best, then we can't maximize those tools. Exactly. I, I'm not a Luddite. You know, I love tech, and I've got a smartphone, and, and, and I, couldn't, I could not live without it, and it brings me a lot of joy, and it helps me a lot in my work. But all of those gadgets have a little bed button somewhere that means off, right? And it's there for a reason. And I think that's what this conversation is, is about now. It's about saying, you know, when are you going to be off, and when are you going to be on? And, and moving away from this notion that being always on is the best way to get the most out of your technology, because it's clearly not. It's taking a toll on so many aspects of our, our lives. You hinted earlier about the, um, the damage it does to our ability to sleep. I mean, there's a lot of research showing that it's making it harder for people to sleep, especially if they are looking at that blue screen, you know, minutes before trying to, you know, before turning the light off and going to, to bed. It's getting in the way of relationships. People feel distracted. They don't feel listened to in the way that it was easier to do before we all were carrying around this weapon of mass distraction in our pocket. And, and even it's taking off um, IQ points. Some research from Hewlett-Packard a little while ago showed that the constant barrage of electronic interruptions and distractions knocks 10 points off our IQ. And 10 points is a lot. It's double the effect of smoking marijuana. So we've saw swallowed this idea that being always on and being the person who gets back to every message instantly or picks up every phone call in the first ring is going to turn us into an 
uber-productive master of the universe, when in fact what it does is turn you into Cheech and Chong, yeah? which, which isn't, <laughs> isn't that useful in most workplaces or classrooms. So it's really all about balance, I think. And that's what this, these new institutes and, uh, that are coming out and looking at how we can make the most of these gadgets, that's what they're all about. They're not about throwing out your iPhone or getting rid of your Samsung. They're about saying, when can you switch off and when can you switch on? When can you be fully present and when can you be surfing the net and you know, finding yourself in other moments in other parts of the world? And it's, it's finding that, um, that equilibrium. My, my two favorite words these days are airplane mode, right? <laughs> I, love my ga- I love my gadgets. And, of course, no man is an island, right? Uh, you, you cannot, when it comes to the tech, you cannot or I think ought not to declare unilateral you know, switch off. You've got, because we're all so connected, you need to explain to other people why you're switching off, when you're switching off, and, and, and make it something that everybody is aware of and rather than just suddenly pulling the plug because that can end badly in the workplace or even socially. I think we all need to start having this chat together amongst ourselves about when, when to turn off and, um, and when not to. And, and once you do that, you realize that you, I love my smartphone a lot more now uh, than I did when I was constantly looking at it. It's an interesting conversation, Carl. I appreciate you uh, having with me today. Thank you very much. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. That's Carl Honore, best-selling author of Boulder, Making the Most of Our Longer Lives. The book just came out in London earlier uh, this month. We need to break. When we come back, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to London Live. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. Got a couple minutes here before we get to the bottom of the hour. I want to talk about uh, the Junos just for a few moments uh, because we're getting closer to the uh, big day. And this weekend is really when things uh, uh, take off. Uh, there are a couple of events uh, going on today. There are a lot of events uh, tomorrow. There are a lot of events on Saturday. And, of course, Sunday is when the award show is. But you've got some of these uh, concerts uh, starting up uh, outside Budweiser Gardens. Um, certainly, you know, Friday, Saturday, there's going to be a ton of, uh, you know, uh, performances by Juno-nominated artists at bars uh, and, per, and different performing pl- halls around London. So it's going to be really uh, pretty cool. You can go to, uh, if you just, if you want to Google Juno's London, uh, they have a whole event calendar for everything that you uh, may want uh, to go to, depending on uh, some of the artists you may want to see in a setting you don't normally see them. I mean, some artists who are going to be playing at, uh, you know, some bars around the city in pretty intimate uh, locations. That's uh, pretty neat. Uh, I've, I've, I've been pretty open with the fact I've never been a, a huge music guy. Not surprisingly, I listened to, uh, talk radio growing up, given where I, I am today. Although since I started, uh, doing news and sports on FMI 6 on the Taz show with, uh, Taz and Jim, I've been getting more into, uh, music. I've been going to a lot more concerts, uh, recently. And this may shock you. Recently, I went to two concerts in one night. You heard that correctly. Two concerts, one night. Uh, the first concert uh, was uh, well, it was, uh, it was Leonard Skinner uh, was the they were the headliner. Uh, but I mostly went to see uh, Randy Bachman. He was uh, playing in London. This was last week, or was it the week before that? Time kind of melds together for me. I believe it was last week. <laughs> 
Uh, went to see him. He uh, played. He's like in his 70s now, still uh, rocking it out. And then went to see uh, Matthew Good at the uh, London Music Hall. And uh, that was pretty cool. I mean, that was a different, very different types of atmospheres. I'm not too familiar with uh, Matthew Good's work. Typically, it's a bit more, uh, this was more acoustic. So typically, he's, you know, louder than what he was, but it was a different kind of setting. It was pretty cool. And the London Music Hall has uh, been doing some upgrades, uh, working towards uh, the Junos. And so the London Music Hall and its revival has been uh, really fantastic to see. Mike Manuel, the work he's done there is is wonderful. So that's a, a cool uh, event uh, place just to go for whatever the reason may be. Uh, last year, I remember going to the London Music Hall when it was announced that London was getting uh, the Junos. And London, uh, some people didn't believe that London was going to get the Junos until they actually arrived because people were saying, listen, we're too small, we're too small, you can't fit it in, we're too small. And here we are more than a year later and we aren't too small. We are hosting the Junos and it's going to be a, a big weekend. It's going to be an interesting weekend for London police because you've got the Junos. There's going to be some cities that are, sorry, some streets that are closed downtown, in particular Dundas, along a Dundas place. Uh, how police take care of everything going on with the Junos, but also St. Patrick's Day on Sunday. Don't forget that. Both the Juno Awards Show and St. Patrick's Day both happen on the same day, so... It's going to be a busy weekend for uh, London police. We will be uh, following that whole aspect of it all on uh, 980 CFPL in the news today, tomorrow, throughout the weekend, and on Monday. So stay tuned for 980 CFPL for all of that. But uh, it's going to be a an interesting weekend, one that I think if you are working as a uh, police officer, you may be uh, sharing some stories well into the future as to what a busy day and hopefully it's a safe day and everyone has fun because uh, having the Junos, uh, St. Patrick's Day should be a fun day for everyone. Hopefully not um, one that lives down in infamy. We do not want that uh, regardless of whether or not the uh, the nation's eye is following London because of the Junos. Hey, know what time it is? Did you know? I didn't know. But did you know? <laughs> uh, I'm not the first person to say, uh, did you know? But I won't, uh, and I won't be the last, but I am going to be doing it now. Here's some uh, Canadian music facts for you before uh, time runs out. Hey, did you know Joni Mitchell was born Roberta Joan Anderson, November 7th, 1943 in Fort McLeod, uh, Alberta? It's true. Hey. Did you know that in March 1993, uh, much music went to Gemini for its coverage of that year's federal election? Speaking of uh, Randy Bachman, hey, did you know that Bachman Turner Overdrive originally called themselves Brave Belt between 1970 uh, to 1972? Later changed their name to what they're now known as today. Hey, did you know that the name of uh, Tragically Hip is derived from a skit that is performed in Michael Nesmith's movie Elephant Parts. Hey, did you know that Anne Murray has sold 24 million records? She's won four Grammy Awards and 25 Junos. It's true. If you didn't know, now'd you know. <laughs> uh, 
I apologize for nothing. I'm going to be doing that on uh, tomorrow's show as well. Just some uh, some fun Canadian music facts since I'm uh, slowly but surely getting into the music side of things uh, now that I've uh, been uh, indoctrinated by the guys at FM96. And um, we're into London Live right now, but I'd encourage you to listen to uh, the 96 take uh, 1230 to 1, which I'm also a part of. And uh, while you're uh, flipping around in the mornings, uh, give a listen, obviously, to the morning news on 980 CFBL, but also give uh, Taz and Jim a, a listen from 5.30 to 9.30. Uh, we need to take a break. When we come back, we'll have more of London Live in the second half hour of this hour. We'll be talking about plastic, and we'll talk to uh, Mike Stubbs, the host of uh, this program on most days, about the uh, the London Knights' final couple of games. That and more coming up. This is London Live and Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Good afternoon. It is 2.30. I'm Jacqueline LaBelle in downtown London. Some light rain. It is 11 degrees. Councillors will have a chance to parse through a list of transit projects that are eligible for government funding later this afternoon. The Civic Works Committee set to meet at 4 o'clock to deal exclusively with the list of 19 initiatives which are broken down by cost. There, the project staff have determined to be eligible for a share of more than $370 million in funding from upper levels of government. London's BRT plans are on the list, but broken down into five separate components. We're getting into the busiest part of Juno Week here in London, ahead of the big award show Sunday night. Tonight's Juno Cup Jam will take over Rum Runners on Dundas. The night will see musicians and athletes come together for musical collaborations ahead of the Juno Cup game tomorrow night at the Western Fair District Sports Centre. The comedy show set for tomorrow night at the London Music Hall. Several artists will be at Masonville Mall on Sunday, uh, on Saturday rather, for meet and greets. And the Songwriters Circle is set for Sunday afternoon at Centennial Hall. Autism advocates are calling on the provincial government to pause the implementation of a new autism program because there are still too many unknowns. The government announced some supports for schools earlier this week, as hundreds of kids may soon enter classrooms because they'll get less funding for therapy. But advocates say it's too little too late. The government's aiming to clear a wait list of 23,000 kids by spreading an existing pot of money to all children diagnosed with autism instead of fully funding treatment. The new program is scheduled to take effect April 1st. The flight recorders from the Ethiopian Airlines plane that crashed Sunday arrived in France today for analysis. In Addis Ababa, about 200 frustrated relatives of some of the 157 people who died stormed out of a meeting with airline officials. They say they're not getting the answers they need. More than 40 countries, including Canada, have now grounded Boeing 737 MAX 8 and 9 planes or refused to let them into their airspace. The CEO of Ethiopian Airlines says its pilots received special training after a Lion Air plane crashed last October. Sensors on that plane produced erroneous information on its last four flights, triggering an automatic nose-down command that the pilots were unable to overcome on its final flight. You're listening to 980 CFPL. This is Devin Peacock in with you on London Live. Uh, Mike will be back next week. On yesterday's show, we talked to Environmental Defense, uh, their uh, environmental group in the country, about Canada's plastic problem. During the interview, I mentioned the provincial government uh, had said it was in favor of a ban on single-use plastics. Well, the NDP is also on the plastic issue, 
Ian Arthur, the NDP's environment critic, is uh, set to put forward a private member's bill that would ban all single-use throwaway plastic by 2025. Despite the PC's support for a plastic ban, it's unclear if they would support this bill. If you recall, Environmental Defense has called for Canada as a whole to be plastic-free by 2025, by which they mean no new plastics being produced. I'd imagine they would be in support of this initiative by the NDP. To talk about it, we're joined by Ian Arthur. Thanks for your time today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be on the show. What uh, motivated you to call for a ban on uh, single-use uh, throwaway plastics now? This has been an issue that I, I have been working on for, for quite some time uh, with our researchers and, and with stakeholders in the community and, and across Ontario. Uh, it's, it's an incredibly prevalent issue, and it, it's, it, it is having a bit of a moment. The, the EU has moved forward on a ban of, of single-use uh, plastics with, with a very, very aggressive targets for, for when they're going to accomplish it. And I, I thought it was an opportunity for Ontario to really show some leadership in this area. Uh, for those who may be unfamiliar with what is uh, in your private member's bill, maybe if you could just uh, let uh, people know what they should know about this bill. Uh, for sure. Uh, it's it's a phased-in plan, and, and what it really tries to do is set some, some ambitious targets, but make sure that those targets are achieve, achievable. We, we throw a huge amount of, of single-use plastics every year, and a, a huge amount of that ends up in the environment. There's 10,000 tons a plastic that ends up in the Great Lakes every single year. So it, it's really targeting, initially, the bill targets what we call the worst offenders list. And these are the items that are most commonly found outside of landfills. There are items like plastic bags that can easily blow away off the top of a landfill and end up, end up in the environment. And uh, stuff like uh, plastic drink stirrers, the, the plastic tops to coffee cups, which can't be recycled. We're really trying to target the things that we don't have the ability to recycle easily and, and that are ending up in the environment. It's interesting, you know, I'm seeing more stories these days about uh, plastic and the issues of it um, uh, in, in water, in our oceans, in our lakes, uh, everywhere. Obviously, it's it lasts forever. It's in some ways one of our greatest inventions, but also it comes with uh, some problematic ways uh, to dispose of it. The the whole thing about straws, I think, is interesting. Straws uh, are not meant to get getting rid of straws. I don't think anyone who suggested doing that has, has felt that's going to uh, fix the problem. But it's an interesting um, kind of, I think, almost a, a talisman for uh, just an example of how plastic is everywhere and we don't need it to be everywhere. Well, that's exactly it. There's incredibly innovative companies right here in Ontario that are already producing alternatives. There's a very cool company producing compostable single-use coffee pods like the K-Cups so that you can throw them in in the green bin instead of into the garbage and into a landfill. And and plastic plastic straws have been a flashpoint. They kind of seized media attention last summer. And a lot of restaurants got on board with getting rid of straws. And I, I will just say that the bill... Uh, accounts for that there is a population that I think needs to continue using straws until we have a, a better and, and cost-effective alternative for them, and, and that's people with disabilities who, who do use them. And we've tried to do that in our bill. We, we are really targeting those, those items that we can live without, 
and we've made exemptions for medical supplies and for any person with any sort of disability that, that has a requirement of a single-use plastic absolutely deserves and, and needs to continue to have access to that. One of the reasons I bring up the straws, and the disability point is a good one, and I just want to leave, leave that to this, to acknowledge that and leave that to the side of the conversation for a moment, just because I, I, when I yep. see some of the the response from people, it's 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 not so much about the plastic, but people don't like being told what to do. So a big part of this is, you know, the education per, uh, component of it all, of just kind of talking to people about plastic. So it's not so much that anything's being taken away; it's just more environment focused. So it doesn't become of well, you know, a, a freedom issue, more of a, a an environment issue. Well, that, that's exactly it. And, and there's an, another very cool company in Brantford that's starting producing a straw alternative that's fully compostable as well. So there, there are alternatives out there. And it's just we're, we're trying to usher companies into making better decisions with the products that they produce. This is, this is really targeted at the producers themselves rather than the individuals. Um, and, and there's many companies that are leading in this area already. A&W has moved away from plastic straws, and, and uh, you know, they're using it as, as a marketing tool, um, that they're promoting the fact that they're moving away from single-use plastics. The uh, government uh, said a couple of days ago they had uh, some, you know, broadly supported the, the concept of banning single-use plastics. Uh, do you think they would support your bill? I, I, I certainly hope that they support my bill. Uh, I, I know it was in the discussion paper. I, I'm skeptical whether there will be follow through. It's, it's easy to talk about these things, but there's there's many jurisdictions in the world that are already taking action on this. The data is out there. Uh, working with local stakeholders, we were able to build a, a very very comprehensive bill here for that that suits Ontario and and I think does find that balance between achievability but ambition. Um, when, when we look to the EU. As I said earlier, for, for leadership in this area, for sure they're, they're doing it. Ireland had a f- um, fantastic results with, with plastic bags, and, and now they're expanding that to, to all single-use plastics uh, under the EU ban. So there, there's many places in the world that are already moving in this direction, and, and we, we should be at the forefront of that. We, we should be leading here in Ontario. We, we, we pride ourselves on our province, and I think this is an area where we can do a lot better. Uh, we, we have such incredible... Uh, we have such incredible nature here in Ontario, and we need to preserve and protect that. There was a new study that came out of the UK, and they couldn't find a water sample that wasn't contaminated with microplastics anywhere in the world. Hmm. Uh, your uh, private member's bill uh, outlined some timelines for all of this. Uh, when you talk about um, banning all single-use throwaway plastic by 2025, does that mean nothing new entering... Uh, Ontario, or or what? What's sort of the definition of of a ban by twenty twenty five? It it would be that it, it's it's aimed at the producers. As I said earlier, we're not trying to put this on, on individuals. It's those who are producing these plastics and in there. So yes, it's it's a complete ban on, on throwaway single use plastics by by twenty twenty five, and it, I, I think it is achievable. It's actually a slower time frame than what the EU is is aiming for. So, yeah, that was going to be my next question in terms of, like, 2025 is not that far away. Plastic is really ingrained in our culture. Is that enough time? Yeah. But it, but the EU, I guess, is doing even shorter than this. Exactly. And this is such a great opportunity to spark innovation. The, since I've introduced this bill, I've I've had 
many, many companies reaching out to me saying, hey, we're working on part of the solution to this. We really want you to know about that. And I, I think that kind of shows the ingenuity that we have here in Ontario and that th- that this kind of regulation can actually spark that growth and, and those changes. And, and we can do something that's very good for the environment, but also stimulates the economy here in Ontario. Ian, I appreciate the time today. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure to be on the show. That is Ian Arthur, the NDP's environment critic. He's also an MPP in Kingston. We need to pause. When we come back, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program, everyone. You're listening to London Live. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on the program again today. Mike was in Guelph last night with the London Knights. Uh, Not the result the Knights were hoping for. They uh, lost 5-1 to the Storm. It's the first of the final three games the Knights will be playing uh, this week to wrap up the regular season before the uh, playoffs begin. The Knights, as we stand right now in a... uh, position where they're in first in the West, but that is not a guarantee. Uh, to talk about uh, where things stand with the Knights, we are joined uh, by Mike Stubbs. Uh, Mike, uh, thanks for taking some time today. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for hosting the show. I'm happy to be a guest again. <laughs> we we can't quit. Uh, we can't quit you, even if you're uh, you're traveling about. We got to get a little uh, Mike on the, on London Live. Uh, so uh, we, we were talking about the uh, th- these final three games yesterday and just how if you look at the West standings, it's London, it's Saginaw, it's the Sioux, and it's Guelph, and it's unusual. The Knights are playing their top three competition, by the standings anyway, uh, to wrap up the regular season. Uh, the Guelph Storm made a lot of moves at the deadline. They got uh, London guy Nick Suzuki as part of uh, some of their deadline deals. And uh, even even though they are not at the top of the conference, they're a very dangerous team, and they showed it again last night. They did. They won 5-1, and I think if you're to look at the schedule, the way that it works out, it's almost like the World Cup of Soccer, where, you know, when the, the groups come out after all of, uh, all of the teams are assigned to their spots, what's the first thing people go looking for? They go looking for the group of death. Where's <laughs> the group of death? That's kind of how the schedule is finishing, because the London Knights are playing the other top three teams in the Western Conference. Now, that has kind of a two-edged sword to it. Number one, it's going to get you ready for playoffs because you're playing against some of the best teams in the OHL. Ottawa happens to be number one overall, but then you've got London and Saginaw and Sault Ste. Marie that come right after that, just showing you how, how good those teams are. And the other side of the sword is it's going to be tough. It's going to be hard to beat these teams. And last night was a winnable game, and the Knights knew that, and I think – I think you have to go to something the Knights assistant coach Dylan Hunter said after the game. He said, if you look at the numbers and the stats and you break down whatever you want to, things are fine. And they really do look fine. And in fact, you go to the second period, the Knights had outshot Guelph 10 to nothing through the first 13 minutes. And yet they hadn't scored. And he said, it gets away from the numbers. You have to ignore those. And they just have to get back to the face that they can do this, the faith that they can score goals. Because right now, they are gripping the sticks a little bit too tight, and you can't just flip a switch and, and change that once the playoffs begin. So they've got two games to restore that faith. So I don't sound like a homer if I say it was kind of like a, a close 5-1 game? 
it was a close five one game it really it's it's really strange to say that, but it was if you look at Guelph's goals, they scored four of them in the third period. they scored three of those on power plays after the Knights penalty kill started the game having to kill off a five on three and then another power play and Guelph has you outlined Nick Suzuki, they add in all kinds of people, Isaac Ratcliffe who is a draft pick of the Philadelphia Flyers, and he's also a London guy, Nate Schnarr from Arizona. They have their pick of the litter among defensemen who are NHL prospects, including a Maple Leafs prospect named Fedor Gordiev, and all of these guys can do damage offensively. And so this is a team that is not easy to deal with, but it was just the fact that Puck started going in in the third period, and once that slide started, you know, the, the Knights just couldn't get it back. And that's, again, one of those things you have to be able to do in the playoffs. So they play Sault Ste. Marie tomorrow night. They play Saginaw on Saturday. And it'll be interesting to see how they approach those games because I think that will really trigger something in this team because they've shown they can do it before. They've gone into big games and they've won them. And they just have to get that belief, like Dylan says, that faith back that they can do it again. One of the interesting stats in hockey, it's kind of similar to a newer stat in, in baseball. It's like uh, for baseball, it's a BABIP, which is uh, batted balls uh, in play. And it's the the rough for me, anyway, hockey equivalent is like the shooting percentages. So uh, you have a lot of shots that just don't go in. But, you know, historically, those shots would go in. So that seems like it's kind of what is plaguing the Knights right now. It is. And that's a great comparison. And so how do you fix that? Well, you try not to fix it too much. As strange as that is, if you're getting balls in play in baseball and people are just catching them because it happens that you're playing against good defenses or it happens that guys are just making plays when maybe otherwise they wouldn't make as many of them, then the important thing is to not change too much. And you're going to be pressed to, to want to because, well, it's not working. We're not winning. And I, I don't know what to do to, to change it. Don't do anything. Keep doing what you're doing. And that kind of lends itself to the analytics numbers that Dylan Hunter pointed to that, Oh, that's fine. They're getting their chances. They're just not going in. They've faced a couple of hot goalies recently. Emmanuel Vela made over 50 saves on Friday night against the Knights. And then the very next night, a guy named Ivan Prosvetov makes over 50 saves again. And so, or I guess it, it turned up to maybe it was high 40s. Um, it was a lot of saves. And so when that's happening, that can kind of rattle you a bit. So it's, it's important to unrattle themselves in a nice trip up to Sault Ste. Marie, enjoy whatever the springtime is bringing <laughs> in the far north. Last time we were there in Sault Ste. Marie, the snowdrifts had drifts of their own. If you, had, if you looked at the snow piles that they dug up along malls and parking lots and things, they actually had snow drifts on top. I've never seen that much snow in Sault Ste. Marie. So I imagine it's still a winter wonderland up there, even if we're struggling to find any white stuff on the ground here. The uh, Knights have uh, two games left. They're two points up on Saginaw for first in the West. Uh, Saginaw's got a game in hand on the Knights. How important is first place for London? It is important because eventually, if you want to get through, you're going to wind up playing a team that, could finish ahead of you and that team could be Saginaw and you want to have home ice advantage. The good thing for the Knights is they're going to be number one or number two. That's the seating and that's it. They've won their division so they've done that part. So they can't fall any lower than the two seed and that helps in the Western Conference. So it does come down to that home ice in game seven. Do you get to game seven? 
this year probably in the second round, these teams are just that close. I think we could see some very long series. And so you want to get it. You want to finish as high as you possibly can. But at the same time, I mean, the Knights have been in a similar situation. If we go back to 2016, which wasn't that long ago, they went into the final weekend, and here's what they knew. If they beat the Erie Otters twice, they would finish first overall, and they would have that home ice advantage. They won the first game, and then they went to Erie, and they lost. And there just seemed to be some air out of the balloon on the way home from that game that, wow, all we had to do was win, and we would have finished first. And then they got over that, and they went on, and they rattled off 17 straight wins on their way to a Memorial Cup championship. So be-all, end-all, absolutely not. Nice to have? Sure. So we'll see what plays out. We will uh, check in with you again tomorrow before the uh, Knights play uh, Sault Ste. Marie. They uh, are in Sault Sioux tomorrow, as you said, Saginaw Saturday night. Uh, Mike, I appreciate the time today. I appreciate you helping out. Thank you. Happy to do it. That's uh, Mike Stubbs, uh, voice of the London Knights and also host of London Live. We need to take a break. We come back. We'll have more of London Live. This is Devin in for Mike on 980 CFPL. My thanks to Carl Honoré, to Phil Squire, to Marcus Plowright, Dan McDonald, Ian Arthur, and Mike Stubbs for coming on today's show. Thanks to Andrew Graham for his work on the program. Today's audio gem is a clip from a news broadcast in the United States where two anchors were talking about a story about Chipotle, and one anchor got very confused over the concept of a healthy bowl. Have a great day. We'll be back with you tomorrow at 1 o'clock. Chipotle trying to help you be a better you out there, okay? New bowls. It's got new bowls that accommodates popular diets. There's a keto bowl, paleo bowl, Whole30 diet bowls. They all have big rules about what you can eat. Oh, you mean those like the tortillas that they make when you order a bowl and our burrito? Is that what you're talking about? No, you can get a bowl at Chipotle. Just in a little bowl. And the certain ingredients <laughs> go to a certain diet. How do you not know this? I mean, I do, but I'm so confused about what you're talking about right now. They're offering paleo diet friendly bowls. It has nothing to do with burritos. <laughs> Just the stuff that's inside. <laughs> but why would you eat the bowl? <laughs> you don't eat the bowl. When you have cereal, do you eat the bowl as well? So what does it matter if it's paleo or not? It's what's in the... It's the ingredients. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's the, ch- the chicken, the lettuce, those things. What's our weather? (laughs) (laughs) Okay.